Where is Governor Abbott? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he is Jeremy S. Wallace reporting from the road in Muleshoe, Texas today. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy is at houstonchronicle.com. Jeremy, what are you doing in Muleshoe? I have to ask you this, because I know where it is, but some people may not. Where is Muleshoe? It's, well, it's on the road to Clovis, New Mexico, of course. Well, of course. All right. <laughs> well, yeah. no, well, it's it's just on the you know close to the Texas Panhandle. We're outside of right. Lubbock, uh, about an hour or so uh, to the uh, north and west of Lubbock, Texas, and a pretty rural type of area, you know. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so I'm chasing uh, Beto O'Rourke as he goes through the Panhandle uh, mm-hmm. and listening for. Our governor, Governor Greg Abbott, to see where yeah, he shows up in the panhandle. We will figure out where he is. Uh, and you're there uh, on the campaign trail. Abbott, not on the campaign trail. We'll get to that. And there's a lot to talk about uh, this week. We were at the uh, Democratic Convention in Dallas this past weekend. Uh, there were some scares with the electricity grid over the last uh, couple of weeks and a whole debate about gun violence in Washington. And I'd like to start with something related to that. So the fallout from Uvalde continues. And you remember, Jeremy, when we were talking originally about this tragedy, this massacre, there was a lot of discussion about how, you know, two weeks out, three weeks out from the shooting, a lot of people are going to move on and forget about this. And that just has not happened uh, at all. And in fact, there's sort of, it's sort of a double-edged sword, I think, because you have so much information coming out, which I would argue should have come out a lot sooner. Should have been a lot more transparency sooner. Uh, as you talked about on social media and here on the show, uh, those families just going through such agony, not knowing exactly how things unfolded. But the fact that it's been hard to get info and more info keeps coming out, keeps it right at the top of the news. Right Over the last week, you saw the House report come out about this, which contradicts some of the things that have been said by the Texas Department of Public Safety. And we also saw in the last couple of weeks, this hallway video, of the officers standing there for more than an hour doing nothing. And there's just anger and a demand for more answers after that video came out showing the officers there doing nothing. This student was at the school board in Uvalde and asked, how in the world is she supposed to feel safe after what happened previously? How am I supposed to come back here? I'm gonna be a senior. How am I supposed to come back to this school? What are you guys gonna do to make sure I don't have to watch my friends die? What are you going to do to make sure I don't have to wait 77 minutes bleeding out on my classroom floor just like my little sister did? Jeremy, I'm going to play part of uh, the audio from this uh, video. It is disturbing. And, you know, I went back and watched the video from the Columbine shooting 23 years ago. It's not that different, you know, with a young man walking through the school with this weapon and sort of nonchalant about it. I mean, you saw the video. And this kid is sort of going through the hallway, you know, flipping his hair back, you know, just sort of uh, casually. There's a young boy in the hallway who was coming back from the restroom who sees this 18-year-old walking through the uh, hallway with a gun. And that kid who sees the young man with the gun turns around and runs the other way. Uh, Here you will hear some of the footsteps and you will hear some of the gunfire. And remember, the gunfire breaks out. Officers show up pretty quickly, but then they don't do anything.
the officers then stand there for about 77 minutes. That's the length of the video. And of course, there was all this criticism, Jeremy. We saw the House report come out that showed that not only did you have the school district police officers there, uh, but you also had almost 400 police, law enforcement from different agencies on the scene. I saw where you tweeted out that it just made you sick. And remember that while they were standing there, the things that were happening in the classroom were just horrific. Do you remember 11-year-old Mia Cedillo? She was the one who smeared the blood on her body. And remember, she testified to Congress that the teacher told them to hide behind desks and backpacks. And then we went to go hide behind my teacher's desk and behind the backpacks. And then he shot the little window and then he went to the other classroom and then he went there's a door between our classrooms and he went to there and shot my teacher and told my teacher goodnight and shot her in the head and then he shot some of my classmates and the whiteboard listen to her tell lawmakers how she was able to get out of that classroom alive when I went to the backpacks, uh, he shot my friend that was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back to the room, so I grabbed the blood and I put it all over me. And What did you do then when you put the blood on yourself? Just stay quiet, and then I got my teacher's phone. As you can imagine, this video of the hallway is almost impossible for the families of some of the victims to look at. This is Kimberly Garza. She was on CNN. She's the mother of Amory Joe Garza, one of the young uh, kids who was killed in that classroom that day. It's just hard. It just, it's hard to wake up. It's hard to think. I some, sometimes I don't even look at um, social media because I'm. I don't want to see or I'm scared to that it's just always going to be in my mind and it's just so hard. What answers do you want now? What? I want accountability. I want I want them to admit what they did. I want them to to like I said take accountability and Are you getting anything from them when you say to them, I want accountability? What do you hear back? Um, that's the thing that upsets me is that I feel like us and all the other families, we don't, we don't get answers. We don't get calls like, you know, this is happening or, you know, they don't, we don't get updates. We feel like we are the last people who know anything. Now, Jeremy, you remember the day after the shooting when Governor Abbott appeared alongside other elected office holders. The, the thing that he said there that, uh, of course, um, has stuck with folks because it was so incorrect, so wrong, is the governor said that it could have been so much worse because, you know, the police rushed right in, rushed right in where the gunfire was happening and they saved the children. So what did Abbott have to say about this video as it was made public? And keep in mind that you can believe that the governor probably saw this video way before the rest of us. The information that was provided to me before telling the public about what happened 
none of the information that was in that video was shared with me on that day. And so it was shocking. Senator Roland Gutierrez, who represents Uvalde in the Texas Senate, was also on CNN. He said Abbott hasn't even been, you know, been back to Uvalde since the days after the shooting. He did two news conferences. You remember that. Uh, these comments came as Gutierrez was talking about how Abbott could have pressed for answers a lot sooner. The Department of Public Safety Director is a direct report to Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott has the power. And by the way, I'm sure Greg Abbott saw those videos a long time before we all did. But he has the direct power to go and ask for accountability, the direct power to go ask what happened here. Why didn't you tell people to go in? Why didn't your supervisors tell people to go in? He has the direct power to get any kind of report that he wants. He's the governor of the state of Texas. And he has refused to step in since day three. He hasn't been back to Uvalde. And he's refused to ask for any kind of accountability here. And he's done nothing but put obstacles in this district attorney and other people that he's put in place that have just devastated this community. We have to get to the bottom of this, but it begins at the top in Texas. We are 26 days away from school starting, and we have yet to have this governor call a special session to raise an age limit from 18 to 21 on access to AR-15s. Now, of course, Jeremy, there's no sign that the governor's going to call a special session in the middle of the summer and in the middle of a campaign, uh, you know, for re-election. Um, it's important, I think, to point out here that as the Texas House report was being released this past Sunday, and it provided a whole lot more information than what we had seen so far, there have been previous efforts to try to sort of act as if this was all over with. Remember, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a couple of weeks ago, back on July 6th, he had pointed to that report that came out from uh, Texas State University, and he called it complete detail of what had happened in Uvalde. That report didn't even say that there were about 400 officers on scene, right? Which is not a granular detail. That's a huge detail, right? Two months later to find out about that, as you said. Uh, sort of makes you sick. I remember that uh, the lieutenant governor had said uh, that everyone should read that report that came out two weeks ago, which didn't have all this information. And that report was based almost entirely on a briefing from the Texas Department of Public Safety, the DPS, which also testified publicly in front of the Texas Senate uh, during that hearing that the Senate held on all this with the uh, committee to uh, protect all Texans uh, and all of that. There's been so much frustration and so much anger uh, over the last two months because, Jeremy, basic information has been hard to get here. Um, and we still don't even have a complete picture. You know, uh, uh, Dustin Burroughs, who we'll hear from in just a bit, he's the chair of that House committee. He had said that this isn't even their final report on the whole thing. Yeah, the the frustration here, you know, it's like there's so many things about this report that like threw me off, you know, obviously first the 376 officers who were there, uh, but then you realize DPS had 91 officers like there on, you know, at the school. And then when you, you know, when you kind of put the timeline together as to when that, you know, when that young girl was making those phone calls to 911, you know, like she made those calls and at least another 30 minutes would go by. You know, it's like the police knew that there were, you know, there was a child in there alive, you know, trying to call for help. And we still had another 30 minutes to wait for any one of those 376 officers to try the door. And, and you know, other things that people are going to miss in some of the reports out there, but nobody tried the door. The doorknob actually in the one classroom didn't didn't really work. Uh, and so it would have been unlocked. And yet they were running around looking for the keys you know, you know, to the doors. If somebody had just tried that door, 
uh, on it's one of those Jack and Jill rooms where they're connected mm-hmm. by a bathroom. Yeah. And so they could have like tried that one door and start saving the kids in one of the classrooms, you know, even if the shooter wasn't in that one. And so you can see from this report, we're just finding these gut wrenching details over and over things that we didn't know ahead of time. Like how did, you know, it's just crazy. How did we not know that DPS had 91 officers on the ground who could have taken command of that situation. And in that report, we find out, you know, everybody's been saying, you know, the, the school police chief, uh, you know, was, you know, the incident commander Mm -hmm. and that he wasn't leading the charge. Well, now we see in this report, he didn't consider himself the incident commander. Uh, right. And he thought there was an incident commander outside the school. And so there was like zero communication from the officers on one side of the building to the other side of the building on separate sides of that door. And mm-hmm. there was no con- communication coming from the outside. It's this unbelievable storm of, you know, terribly poor communication. And it looks like our emergency services people are just all on their own to think that like, you know, we ended up having, you know, these, you know, off duty police officers, you know, coming from a barber chair chair to kind of save the day is insane. It's like, that is what we were left with because we had 376 officers who couldn't communicate, didn't know who each other was, didn't know who was in control and could not respond to a little girl calling for help from a, 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 on the other side of potentially an unlocked door. Ah, it just yeah, all drives right. you crazy. Uh, yeah. and, and I don't know how we're ever going to get over all this. And again, why didn't we, it, it just seems like in other disasters and moments of crisis, you see governors mm-hmm. kind of take control and almost become the command leader. Like right. I'm surprised, you know, it's like that he didn't spend more time in Uvalde, even mm-hmm in the days afterwards, like I would have set up like a, a mobile command, you know, governor's office there for at least a couple of weeks to make sure I'm watching over how it's being handled. So mm-hmm. these people are being taken care of, you know, and, and obviously we just didn't see that. We just have not seen, you know, and a lot of the TV appearances the governor makes, he's, he's mm-hmm. going on Fox to talk about border and other issues. And there's sometimes where you just like, you just want to hear him talking more about what's happening with Uvalde. Uh, right. And I kind of wish he was just kind of put a little bit more emphasis back onto that topic because it's troubling for all of us. You know, mm-hmm. if you check my social media, I was in Scurry County uh, a couple of days ago. I walk into the library and they have a list of every one of those children who died uh, in Uvalde. Uh, you can't get into the library without seeing their names. And it was such a nice thing to see. But here you're, you're hundreds of miles away from Uvalde. And yet, but it affects Every single person in the state, every person, not just with a kid in school, but any person who's ever been through third or fourth grade. Right. You know, it's like that is all of us like this affects all of us. And it's just not like it's not good for this to like just go away. And we just try to turn the page. It's not time to turn the page. Like, (laughs) I think we'll know when that is. And this is not it. It is not it. And, you know, when you look at that uh, Texas House report, I think the key is that it completely contradicts the official story, as has been told by the Texas Department of Public Safety, which, again, that narrative has been propped up by the Texas Senate and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. The idea that the local cops who were on the scene were almost solely to blame for this when the Texas House report goes into detail about why all of those different police agencies would be to blame for this, including the Texas Department of Public Safety, who, as you said, they had 91 officers on the scene. And do you want to bet that the officers from DPS are a little better equipped 
than the officers with the local school district police, which had five officers there. Chairman Dustin Burroughs of the Texas House Investigative Committee was on KAMC television in Lubbock, and he spoke to my friend, uh, reporter Ryan Chandler. When you just realize the magnitude of the failures on multiple levels, it, it is maddening. When you take this in, into account in its entirety, what sticks out to you? The people of Uvalde woke up that morning and they had a false sense of security. They believed they had systems in place at the school level, at the police force level, saying they were ready for this type of attack. The fact is they did not. And what I think really sticks out to me is I know there's other systems similar to Uvalde across the entire state and nation that probably are there. And there's also a false sense of security. That's what really sticks out to me. You know, I see what he's saying, but I'm not certain that parents feel like they know for sure that a school district is ready to go against an armed intruder who who is dead set on killing uh, elementary school students. I don't know that parents really think about that, Jeremy, when they're setting their, you no. know, sending the kids to school. That's not the thought that they have that, 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 oh, wow, I'm sure, I'm sure we have systems in place in case a guy shows up with an AR 15 and wants to kill everybody at the school. Chandler asked Burroughs what can be done to improve security at schools. Well, Burroughs doesn't really have an answer for that. He says lawmakers are going to have to hash that out. Yeah. When the speaker formed this committee, he said, we need to know what the facts are. So they appointed me to be an investigator uh, and my committee. We went and we basically figured out here are the basic facts. We have now reported, we have made our preliminary, not final report to the entire Texas legislature. There are two committees in the Texas House, one in the Texas Senate, that are studying and trying to come up with policy recommendations to make sure that we keep Texas children safer. And we have just weeks to go before the kids are back in schools, Jeremy. And as you have pointed out, if there's no special session, you know, for good or bad, that means that the kids will go back for an entire year, an entire school year before any laws could be different having to deal with any of this in the state. Yeah. And, and, and that was the, the immediate thought I have. It. I, I've been reminded so many times because so many school districts really start up really soon here. We're talking like a couple of weeks at the most for some, and it's going to be back to, you know, back to school. And the, the thing is, there is nothing demonstrably different about, you know, school security today as there was yesterday. The governor was on Lubbock television here yesterday, you know, talking about like how there was, you know, had been, there's more communication with TEA and lo local law enforcement and coordination, but there's no real legislative fix uh, or change. There's nothing different, you know, when you start school, uh, you know, in August versus what it was like, you know, on May 24th, it's all the same. Nothing's mm -hmm. different. And it's, and that right. scares me. You know, I think a lot of parents are going to be walking to that elementary school saying, um, okay, so do we have more resource officers on duty now? Do we have more security? You know, do we have a system in place? How do we know mm -hmm. anything's different? And mm -hmm. the answer is we just don't know. Nothing. And, you know, if the state doesn't have an answer, surely Congress and the federal government will come to the rescue. I say that uh, with sarcasm just dripping from my tongue. Of course, if the U.S. House is debating a ban on assault rifles, and they are, and I saw where that bill did pass through a committee in the House, you know that Texas Republicans in Washington have taken a moderate stance. I'm just full of it today, aren't I? Um, for example, here is Representative Ronnie Jackson 
from where you are in West Texas. I have a message for the Biden administration. If you're thinking about taking our ARs, you can start here in Texas. On behalf of all the law-abiding gun owners in the state of Texas, I just want to say, come and get it. You know how it says, come and get it on that uh, that iconic flag, Jeremy. Come and get it. Wait, I'm, that is not what it says. Is that what it says on the mugs and the, the, uh, the different uh, stickers and uh, commemorative flags? And Oh, wait, come and take it. I love he's he's holding that AR-15. He says, come and get it. That's kind of an important phrase if you're going to get it right. So with, with that kind yeah. of nuanced argument, you might want to hear what the Democrats have to say on the other side. Here's uh, Jamie Raskin from Maryland. He has a decidedly different take. He said that Republicans are wrong to argue that Democrats are trying to get rid of the Second Amendment, which is what guys like Jackson are trying to suggest with that. To support his argument, Representative Raskin turned to the writings of known liberal the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Read Scalia's opinion in District of Columbia versus Heller, the decision that our colleagues applaud because it established an individual's right to gun ownership quite apart from militia service, overturning decades and decades of understanding. But you've got to take the bitter with the sweet. You've got to read the whole decision in its entirety because Justice Scalia stated, Scalia stated that the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. He said it is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. It does not protect the right of citizens to carry arms for any sort of confrontation. So what makes an AR-15 worse? You know, you will hear from uh, Second Amendment enthusiasts, I'll say it that way, uh, that liberals, Democrats don't know what they're talking about when it comes to assault rifles. They will say that, look, the Democrats just want to ban weapons that look scary. So for an explanation, we heard uh, in testimony in Congress from Dr. Kylie Ann Hunter, who explained the difference between an AR-15 and the way the bullet interacts with your body versus other weapons that are on the streets of the United States. So this weapon was chosen by the United States Army in Vietnam because it was designed to shoot through a standard issue military helmet at 500 yards. It was designed to kill someone wearing a military helmet at 500 yards. So what that does to a civilian who's wearing nothing, a baseball cap, is liquefy organs. What it does is liquefy organs. How many people are walking around a school in Uvalde or anywhere else with a military issue helmet? Of course, it's nobody, Jeremy. And you remember that it was Beto O'Rourke on the campaign trail when he was running for president who said that, hell yes, we will take your AR-15 your AK-47. And earlier this year, before the Uvalde shooting, Governor Abbott's campaign was pummeling him for having said that. Have you seen Abbott's campaign do anything like that recently? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. It just it, It's almost like that disappeared. Now, it may come back before November, of course. We have seen that Governor Abbott has said that he plans to spend as much as about $20 million on uh, television, radio, digital ads, and all of that. Uh, but in the meantime, it seems like, at least for that specific comment, Beto kind of has a pass. Although, he's not exactly saying that same thing either now, is he? No, absolutely not. It's like, it's interesting, like, you know, the event I was just at in Mule Shoe, 
uh, he did, you know, talk about the Second Amendment. He made clear he wants to defend the Second Amendment. You know, he, he's trying to do this thing where he, uh, you know, explains that he does want, uh, you know, to find common ground on some gun control legislation. Uh, but he continues to make this case, particularly in these areas, that he's not t- trying to take people's guns. Uh, and he talks about responsible gun ownership. Uh, and, and so what you've seen from the Abbott campaign, it makes sense. oh, see, now it's like as more than just hitting it on the, he wants to take your AR-15, you know, type stuff. Now they're kind of hitting at, mm-hmm. look, he flip-flops back and forth depending on where he is. You know, when he's in Tyler, right. Texas, or, you know, in Muleshoe, he's going to say, I'm going to defend your Second Amendment right. You know, but when he gets into the cities, he'll say stuff like, hell yeah, I'll take your AR-15s. And so they're now trying to make it sound like, you know, the, the problem with Beto on guns is the flip-flopping and not necessarily focusing so much on, you know, <laughs> Abbott doesn't not clearly doesn't want to be out there right now saying, no, we need more AR-15s out there. Leave all those gun owners alone. It's like, I don't think he wants to make that the message. Uh, so he's got to be careful kind of how he threads that given this mood right now. What would you say the mood was, Jeremy, at the Texas Democratic Party convention last weekend in Dallas? Uh, boy, it is a lot of different in things. In a word, what do you think the mood? I, I, I would say upbeat. Yes, definitely. You know, it's like in the in the run up to Beto speaking, you know, the speech before Beto and the speech, you know, of mm-hmm. Beto were definitely uplifting. If you you got to check out my video I posted on YouTube of the reverend mm-hmm. who had spoken right before uh uh, oh, yeah. Beto, there's a, there's a heck of a, you know, probably the best speech of the day, you know, easily without a doubt. It's yeah, like right. that thing was resonating in my head 24 or 48 hours afterwards. So, mm-hmm. well, that's what a great uh, speech from an African-American pastor will do. He was talking about, um, a, a, a Beto deal for, for Texas, um, in Beto's and here's my takeaway from the two conventions, it seemed like the Republican Party of Texas are in such a, that those folks are in such a horrible mood while they're winning. Democrats seem like they're in a great mood while they're losing. So at the, uh, at the convention in Dallas, Beto told the party's faithful that he understands that they do have Democrats, not just in the big cities, but also in the small places like where you are, Jeremy. To my friends in Palo Pinto County, who show up at every event in every other county, until we commit to coming to see you in Palo Pinto County, which we'll be at in the next 30 days. You are the spirit of this moment. Absolutely undefeatable. It's one of his cutesy things he likes to do is pick a random ass place and just keep talking about it. Uh, Now, remember uh, how O'Rourke was criticized by some Democrats back in 2018 because he would just really not go on the attack against Senator Ted Cruz during that race for U.S. Senate. Well, he has no such hangups, Jeremy, about going after Abbott. Greg Abbott is chaos. He is corruption. He is cruelty. And he is incompetence. But he is not Texas, and he is not us. Among the many things that Beto listed that Abbott is doing wrong in his estimation, the management of the electricity grid is right at the top of the list. Think about this. The inability to keep the lights on or the heat running or the water flowing when the temperature dropped last February and hundreds of our fellow Texans died and he allowed pipeline CEOs and energy traders to make billions of dollars 
while our fellow Texans were suffering and freezing, and then had the audacity to pass the bill on to each and every single one of us with higher utility rates in the form of that Abbott tax that you pay each and every single month. That is not us. Now, if you think he's done listing things that Abbott's not us about, well, then you're quite wrong. Nor are we a people that would ever deny women their right to make their own decisions about their own body and their own future. We are not a people who attack teachers, nor do we turn our backs on law enforcement when they beg us not to sign permitless carry into law, which allows almost any Texan to carry a loaded gun publicly without a background check, without any training or any vetting whatsoever. And now, ladies and gentlemen, more cops have been gunned down in this state than in any other. Now, Jeremy, I walked into the convention hall right before Beto was about to speak, and it wasn't clear that he was about to speak because, remember, they had to move around the speaker schedule because they were running so far behind. Um, at one point, I think they were about two hours behind, and that would have been uh, based on everyone speaking for maybe about two or three minutes each. And I would say that's probably the best organized I've seen the Texas Democratic Party in a little while. It's a little <laughs> gratuitous to say that they don't run things efficiently at the Democratic Party. Uh, but uh, you were there uh, in the hall as well. You saw the speech and then you also attended, I think, the uh, the fundraiser he had after that a little concert that was going yep. on in Dallas. What was the scene like? Well, it, it, it was crazy, you know, uh, you know, deep into the night because, you know, that speech ended way over an hour after it was supposed to take, be taking place. You know, as we were talking about, like the, the convention was so bad backed up and the, you know the way they they let everybody who's ever been a democrat give a 30 minute <laughs> speech the prayer to start the you know the event was a 35 minute prayer before we even got into <laughs> the actual yeah. speeches so we were behind schedule you know from the first prayer and by the time we hit the pledge of allegiance i've never seen well, <laughs> that happened ever in my life. <laughs> I was going to say, it, you know, when they put out the list of speakers originally, they could have given us a list of people who were not speaking. Yeah. And that would have been more efficient. Well, and, and, and so they, they ended up like ditching people and some people who were supposed to be never spoke during the convention. There was one point where Wendy Davis was going to have a speaking role. I talked to her and she just gave up on waiting and like she wasn't going to like wait around for her time. You know, there were a couple other members, you know, Lizzie Fletcher originally was supposed to, supposed to speak to the convention. But, you know, by the time she was going to speak, she probably would have been speaking at 1 a.m. <laughs> if they would kept the schedule going. So it's like you saw a lot yeah. of like Democrats just not get their chance kind of speak to these conventioneers. Well, and it's important to point yeah. out, it's like, you know, it's like, so all that energy that's going on at these conventions are great and stuff, but there's a reality mm -hmm. to the, the whole situation. And like, I wrote about this a little bit back on Monday about how, you know, the, you know, to win you know, this race is such an uphill climb, you know, so I, I crunched the numbers, you know, I looked at like, you know, every governor's race in America since 1992, uh, there's been 206 of those that have had the incumbent running for reelection, uh, 176 yeah. of those candidates won. That means 85% of every candidate who's tried to run for reelection as governor has won. And so right. Beto has a serious numbers problem. He has to somehow figure out how am I going to be in that 15% that do break through. And in this case, you know, in the story I wrote, like he's going to have to really run away from Biden's coattails uh, and prove that Greg Abbott, you know, is somehow 
you know, it needs to be fired from the job. And that's why when you, you hear yeah. that negative approach to him, you know, talking about the incompetence, talking about like all throughout the panhandle, he's been telling people he's neglecting you. He's not paying attention to y'all. You know, it's like, you know, all of that, you know, feeds into this. Like, what do you have to do to break through? Because this is an impossibly difficult climb to kind of get through and beat a sitting governor. It just is rarely happening, you know, in America. And we haven't seen it happen, obviously, since Ann Richards in 1994. Uh, Texas has not mm-hmm. seen a governor have even a race, you know, really, you know, until now. And so this is, it, it just puts in perspective that, you know, through all the speeches and stuff, there's a lot of work to get done. And it may mm-hmm. be very hard to do. Yeah, they need to make their case uh, as Democrats for why the Republicans need to be turned out in a pretty bad environment for Democrats, particularly because of the Democrat in the White House having uh, you know particularly bad uh, approval ratings in Texas and around the rest of the country as well. Although someone like Beto is uniquely positioned because unlike a lot of challengers, everybody already knows who he is, yeah. right? We've talked about the fact that this is somebody who enjoys about 99% name ID. If you say Beto, you don't have to say O'Rourke. Everyone knows who you're talking about. There's good and bad to that. It can be a double-edged sword. If everyone knows who you are, that means they probably also have an opinion about you already for good or bad. Now, the guy who's running as lieutenant governor uh, candidate, the uh, the light gov candidate for the Democrats, Mike Collier, he wants to make the case on the electricity grid. And I saw that, and I don't know how much they're spending on this. It can't be a whole lot just yet, Jeremy, but a television ad up from the Collier campaign calling out Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick for not fixing, as Collier says, quote, the damn grid. Since last year, I've been calling on Dan Patrick to fix the damn grid. Now we're staring down more blackouts because that didn't happen. Let me tell you what did happen. Dan Patrick put his rich campaign donor friends right there on ERCOT's board Well, our energy bills went through the roof. When your lights go off, you call Dan Patrick and you tell him that's the cost of eight years of failure in office. Dan, you didn't fix the damn grid. Now you got to go. I still think this is one of the best issues for Texas Democrats because it's specifically nonpartisan. It ha- you cannot connect this back to the president, who is, as you said, one of the biggest liabilities for Democrats, not just in Texas, but around the rest of the country. You may have seen that we did have conservation alerts in the last couple of weeks. Once again, here in Texas, that freaks everybody out. Um, I sort of chuckled at this, Jeremy. Did you see where uh, this meteorologist on ABC 13 in Houston, Travis Herzog, he was on TV doing the weather there. And he was literally talking about the possibility of rolling blackouts. And then the power went out in the studio. You have this kind of heat over major populations. You get a big draw on that electric demand. And it looks like we may have just switched over to generator power. Our lights just went out. You got to love that. It's a real time reminder of exactly what's going on. Now, Jeremy Abbott has said that the lights are going to stay on. Remember, he said that he could guarantee that. Can you give right, a guarantee that the lights are going to stay on? I can guarantee the lights will stay on. What a thing to have said, Jeremy. And you remember the governor had said a version of that uh, over and over again, repeatedly going back to it, uh, you know, at the earliest, I think, around last November, uh, you know, after the legislature had not really done a whole lot to shore up the electricity grid. And as you know, and we've reported many times here, the electricity market in Texas is relatively unchanged from the way it was set up when we did have the big winter storm here that caused so many problems, caused hundreds of deaths across the state, uh, your own pipes to bust uh, at your house, uh, et cetera. Uh, and look, it's one of those where it's a gamble, right? I was talking with a Republican consultant this morning who said, you know, Collier's an idiot to be talking about the grid. 
it's going to be fine. He should be talking about property taxes instead. And of course, property taxes is something that Collier's been talking about. My argument would be, what do they have to lose by hey saying, let's roll the dice, remind people that if something bad happens with the grid, then you know who to blame as a voter. Because if they don't do that here in uh, you know July and August, then I, th- I would say that that was political malpractice. Yeah, and, I, and I'm of the thought process that the damage has already been done on the grid. You know, I know some people go, "Oh, are they? You know, do they need the power to go out for the Democrats to get a burst?" No, no. It's like I think just the tension all around the state, and no matter where you go, people are kind of nervous about the grid. You know, it's like and and I think that kind of mindset of like, you know, is this one of those dates we have to conserve or not? You know, because Texans will conserve, you know, we will like, you know, do sure. the job, you know. But you know, it's one of those things like, you know, should we really have to be worrying about that all summer long? And why is it going to be better next summer? You know, it's not like we're bringing on a lot more new electricity onto the market. You know, it's like and mm-hmm. the only thing that we're really kind of growing are, you know, the renewables at this point. It's not like, you know, has anybody heard of like a new gas plant being built? It's like they're not doing that right no. now. And so it's like, yeah, well, it's a great issue, I think, to kind of focus on for both Democrats mm-hmm. and Republican, because this is, you know, like you said, it affects everybody. Everybody's going to turn on the lights and we want to make sure they're there. <laughs> Well, affects everybody and is unique to Texas, right? I mean, this is not one that can be – of all the issues we're talking about, whether it's guns, abortion rights, gay marriage, which we'll get to in just a second, this is one that you can't nationalize. And it's been specifically set up such that it can't be nationalized because we're not on the national grid. Yep. If, if it fails, it's Texas leadership's fault, right? And I would say that in some ways it's failing already. You know and probably have seen the reports about the fact that major um, industrials in Texas, the major, major you know, manufacturing plants have been paid by the state to go offline or to curtail their manufacturing, Toyota uh, being one of them. So if you say, hey, the electricity grid, well, it's not going to fail. I mean, in some sense, it's failing right now If you, because we're not, be, we're not able to use it at the capacity that we would normally be able to use it. They have uh, aging plants that are running around the clock right now to keep everybody's lights on and air conditioning go, uh, going. And the manufacturing is shut off in a lot of the places, Jeremy. It's almost like if you had a car that you know will do 120, but you can only drive it uh, 30 miles an hour in a 70. Yeah. Absolutely. We only have more companies coming on board and we have more people to move into the state of Texas. So guess what? Everybody needs more electricity. You know, it's like so whatever, like we're setting all these records this year and we're barely able to keep up, you know, with keeping the, you know, the electricity flowing. And now we're going to mm-hmm. like just, you know, again, where, where's the fix? Where's the uh, the confidence that like, you know, everything's going to be fine. Like I, I really got to the point this week where I was going to do a load of laundry and I had to check my phone to check the ERCOT status just to see if we were in a conservation time. And then I thought to myself, no place else in this country are people having to check the grid (laughs) before doing their laundry. (laughs) It's because you're a responsible citizen, Jeremy. (laughs) Not everybody's doing that, right? Which is part, part of the problem. Um, You know, we're going to get back to talking about uh, what has happened in the, uh, in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Uh, One of the things that is being debated hotly now is what's next for legislatures and the courts of which other issues uh, might be greatly affected by the way that the Supreme Court ro- uh, ruled on uh, abortion rights, which was to say that you know <laughs> the, the right that women have had for 50 years is no more. And we see already in Texas lawmakers talking about things like banning women from going to other states. 
if they need to seek an abortion, if they seek an abortion. Um, one of the issues that is out there, and this is not some conspiracy theory. Remember, it was Justice Clarence Thomas who said in his opinion about abortion that legislatures and courts ought to go ahead and look at other things, right, including uh, gay marriage, contraception, and some other stuff. So who would weigh in on this the loudest while doing not much about it? Well, I download the Verdict podcast with Ted Cruz, and the very junior senator from Texas said there are serious flaws in the ruling that upheld gay marriage, and he thinks it ought to be overturned. So look, Obergefell, like Roe versus Wade, ignored two centuries of our nation's history. Marriage was always an issue that was left to the states. Uh, we saw states before Obergefell that were moving. Some states were moving to allow gay marriage. Other states were uh, moving to allow uh, civil partnerships. There, there were different standards that the states were adopting. And had the court not ruled in Obergefell, the democratic process would have continued to operate, that if you believed gay marriage was a good idea, the way the Constitution set up for you to advance that position is to convince your fellow citizens. And if you succeeded in convincing your fellow citizens, then your state would change the laws to reflect those views. Uh, in Obergefell, the court said, no, we know better than you guys do. And now every state must uh, m must sanction and, and permit gay marriage. Um, I think that decision was clearly wrong when it was decided. Jeremy, it seems like on this argument and on the argument over abortion that some folks have been pretty disingenuous when they have said that what they would hope for is that the states would just individually decide these things, especially now that you see after the fall of Roe that there are Republicans actively talking about a national ban on abortion. I thought this was supposed to be for the states. We have lawmakers, as I mentioned here in Texas, saying that, hey, by the way, maybe women should not be allowed to go to other states if they seek an abortion. Well, I thought this was supposed to be left up to the states. Why can't I travel to you know some other place like New Mexico or wherever they, or California, wherever they have made a different decision from what's been made in Texas and do what is legal there? Um, and look, I think when it comes to these issues that are suddenly in play, when people thought they were settled, right? Didn't Don't you think that most folks across the country thought that gay marriage was kind of settled, that we'd moved on from that, and now it's actively being talked about as being overturned? Um, abortion rights for 50 years. Women and everyone else pretty much thought this was a settled thing, right? There were some activists who didn't think so and worked hard every day uh, to overturn it. Do you think this is something that's a motivating factor for not only more liberal voters, Democratic voters, but also might put some, uh, you know, people who have traditionally voted for Republicans or are open to voting for Republicans might put them in play for Democrats this fall? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Like I was just, you know, speaking with uh, a, a couple of young women uh, here in, you know, Muleshoe, uh, Ileana Gonzalez. I was talking to her and like she said, you know, it's like once that Roe versus Wade decision came down, she was like, you better believe I'm going to go vote. You know, just like, and she got one of her friends, they got registered to vote and they're coming out to vote. You know, it's like, and would that have happened if not for uh, the decision? I'm not so sure. And, but I, I think you're seeing that, like you, you mentioned, you know, if, you know, gay marriage is you know, like, you know, I, I think there's a lot of us who wouldn't, you know, like, that's a scare tactics. It's not really going to be in, in a challenge, but to hear Ted Cruz right away, you know, basically mm -hmm. put it on the target you know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's clear that's the next step. You know, it's like he just articulated it and it's a legitimate concern people should have that, you know, you know, Roe is, is gone 
And now Obergefell could be the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about these different uh, rights, as people understand them, um, I think the Democratic Party really deserves some criticism for not having done more to try to shore these things up. I was talking to some Democratic activists at the convention who had said that, you know, a lot of what they understood to be their rights as Americans are really held up by Gossamer. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just that there was a there was a Supreme Court decision that allows for a woman's right to choose what her, the, you know, her autonomy over her body is hers because of this decision and not because of a statute or because of a constitutional amendment or anything like that. It's just this decision that could be overturned at some point. Same thing with gay rights. Why not move forward with something that would codify it, put it into law, and then it changes the entire debate completely. And I talked to some Republicans as well who felt the same way, at least about this part of it, which is that the court as it is acting now in very conservative fashion on one issue after another might force the hand of the legislative branch to say, hey, on a lot of these issues, if we don't do something about it, we can't just count on the the fact that the courts are going to leave it the way it was. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's not a situation where you just, you know, hope that it's going to change. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think you're right. The Democratic Party, it's like, you know, Whatever the organization is, is like it didn't give people the same fear that, you know, the court could go at any minute and like everything that we fought for is gone. You know, it's like I don't know if people fully believed like, you know, like, OK, you you know, oh, yeah, it's like, you know, the court you know could change and you know, like but still things were fine, you know, but I, I just don't think the fire was there. And I think if everybody could go back and, you know, kind of. Mm-hmm you know, reconfigure the Democratic Party's message on this, I think it'd be a little bit more intense. You know, you saw so many people like go away from those issues. Like, oh, we got to subtract, you know, uh, you know, attract people in the suburbs, you know, so let's, you know, not talk about social, you know, democratic policies as much, you know. And I think that may have been a detriment because you took out the fire of the Democratic base to make sure, you know, Roe doesn't get overturned mm-hmm. or make sure, you know, gay marriage isn't overturned. You know, they've, created a hole here you know, and now how do you fix it yeah and to the point uh of, of of what's going on with all these issues i say this all the time i'll say it again until proven otherwise the texas republican primary is the most important pri- election on earth that almost no one pays attention to right 31 million americans deal directly with the consequences of it and what do we have vote to you know, almost 2 million people and that's it no one paying any attention to it. Interesting, CNN is paying attention to this finally. Maybe I've said it enough times for the national folks to get tuned in. And they've got a special documentary coming up uh, this weekend, Sunday at 7 Central. What in the world is going on in Texas right now? A ruby red state gets redder. Money is what's pushing Texas to the far right. Why? Really, really wealthy people spend a lot of money to get policy made the way they want it. And they get it. CNN investigates. I do not think that the average voter has any idea. Is this about being conservative or is it about control? Follow the money. CNN special report, deep in the pockets of Texas, Sunday at 8 on CNN. Of course, that's uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. So that's 7 p.m. Central Time, Sunday night. And for our friends in El Paso, that would be what, Jeremy? Six o'clock on on a mountain time. There you go. The, The El Paso folks will say that I forget about them, but I don't. It's not true. Uh, I'll be tuned in, and I might even make a cameo in the uh, in the documentary. So I hope everybody will check it out, and I hope everybody gets something out of it. It's it. It's not just that we're conservative rednecks around here. There's more to it than that, right? We've talked about it many times. I think the uh, 
the correspondent there, Ed Lavendera, gets it. So I'll be interested to see how this comes out. All right. If you enjoy the show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also this weekend, Jeremy, I'm in plug-in mode. Uh, there uh, is going to be a special edition of a show called CityCast Houston that shows up in your Texas Take feed. I hope you'll enjoy it. It's an interview with uh, Carrie Blakinger, who has that uh, that new book out about uh, uh, corrections. She's the she's the big corrections reporter. You know, she spent some of her life behind bars, and now she writes about people who spend their lives behind bars. Corrections in Ink. My daughter is reading that book now, and I guess I'll swipe her copy when she's when she's done with it. But you can uh, check that uh, show out this weekend, and uh, hope you'll uh, hope you'll check out CityCast Houston. I really enjoy that podcast. It's hosted by my friend uh, Lisa Gray. It's kind of like texture for your life. If you live in Houston or you love Houston, which I do, it's a great show. They get into some not so serious things, but then really serious things as well. I love it. If you like our show, do what I said, be a subscriber, give us all the stars that you can. What is it? Five stars and give us a good review. We appreciate it. Uh, you should subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.